following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. All right. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 34. For thus says the Lord God, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they're among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the water courses and in all the inhabited parts of the land. I will feed them with good pasture and the mountain heights of Israel shall be their pasture. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and they shall feed on rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you pushed with flank and shoulder and butted at all the weak animals with your horns until you scattered them far and wide, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be ravaged, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken." Uh, the gospel reading today comes from Matthew's Gospel, from the Palm Pitch chapter, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you are blessed by the Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that you saw him hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that you saw a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison or visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at the left hand, you are the accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not come and visit me. Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just 
as you did not do, uh, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want to start with one of my uh, Pastor Scott poll questions. <laughs> I guess it's more open-ended than a poll question, but um, when I say the word king, or someone says the word king, which king comes to mind for you? Right now, when I say king, which king do you think of? Go ahead and shout it out, because it'll be, it'll be fun. We need a little bit of levity at the moment. LeBron James. Le- <laughs> LeBron James. Elvis. Oh, my goodness. All right. <laughs> yes, the answer is always Jesus, even if it sounds like a squirrel. Yep. <laughs> King Arthur. Oh, interesting. King Tut. King Tut. These cannot, you, you all are being like, you're going to like the fifth king on your list. These cannot be the first kings that came to mind for you. <laughs> King Louis, specifically in Hamilton. King Charles. King Charles. Okay, yes, he's the, he's the brand new young, young buck taking Buckingham Palace by storm, right? I don't understand the British monarchy. And I don't care to, so please do not fill me in. But <laughs> What else? Any other kings? <laughs> wow. Is that Tony Romo back there? I cannot see. Um... King David, okay, yeah, we heard King David mentioned earlier in the scripture readings, didn't we? Um, I didn't hear a Disney king. I'm kind of surprised. There's a lot of Disney people in here. I don't know who that is. Oh, okay, King Triton, okay, yeah. Sometimes shows up in the crossword puzzle. I I do know who that is. All right, so today is uh, Christ the King Sunday, sometimes called Reign of Christ Sunday. More on that in a minute. Uh, but Christ the King Sunday, I'll just tell you really briefly about it. It's, it's like a feast day of the church, meaning it's an important holy day. It is actually the last day of the liturgical calendar year, right? So liturgically, tonight is the night when you would watch the ball drop and, you know, have, engage in revelry and all that stuff. Um, uh, it can happen anywhere between November 20th and November 26th. So this is actually the latest that Christ the King Sunday ever happens, which is a little piece of trivia that you can definitely impress your friends with at work this week. <laughs> but what does Christ the King Sunday mean? Um, that is a question that depends a lot on your understanding of what a king actually is. Right? And so I love doing this exercise like, where I ask you what's the first thing that comes to mind for you because we get such a range of answers. We got Elvis and we got King Louis and we got an animated uh, merman. And we got lots of other things too. Whatever your first picture of a king happens to be is likely to be sort of transposed onto this idea of Christ the King Sunday because uh, we all have a different conception of what monarchy is and we don't we don't live in a monarchy, so we, we kind of observe it from afar or through stories or that kind of thing. And even if we did, like even, the, even if we did live in England where they have a, a king, um, it's not the same kind of king as the biblical kings. And it, it leaves us with this range of questions, um, which is very common when we're trying to do the work of biblical interpretation. 
And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that. So many concepts in the Bible are centered around key words or key metaphors that might evoke a hundred different meanings for a hundred different people when you read the words to them or read the stories to them. And so you're left wondering, what is the correct meaning? If there's a hundred different meanings of what the word king is, which is the one that we're actually supposed to apply to our understanding of Jesus, as an example? Or you could pick a bunch of other words and metaphors from Scripture and ask a similar question. And this leads us into all kinds of theoretical concepts about biblical interpretation, which are like um, mostly for eggheads. Um, but I'm one, so I'm going to tell you about, about it a little bit. Some people would say you have to give primacy to the original meaning, the author's original intent. What did the author of that book of the Bible mean when they wrote the word whatever? In this case, you know, wrote about Jesus as a king. Other people would say, well, that is important to keep in mind, but meanings do evolve over time, and that's a legitimate thing that happens within the Christian church, and we should not necessarily cast aside meanings that have developed for the people of God over time, even if they weren't the original meaning. And then you get those people in a room together, and they like start fighting with each other. Not really, but they argue a little bit. Can we even know what Christ the King means? Now, I am not a biblical nihilist. I'm not saying that we just have to give in and accept that there's no way to know. So what I would argue for is not throwing up our hands, but opening up our hands. Right? Rather than giving up and saying, well, well you just can't know. Whatever, whatever you think is fine with me. It doesn't matter. I don't really think of anything because it doesn't matter. Rather than that, I would say, here's, here's the impression that I have, but I'm holding this loosely and gently and carefully. I think that the, the people of God, especially those of us here in the Christian church culture, would do the whole world a big favor if we would hold some things a little more loosely. Right? What we model for the world around us, which desperately also needs, by the way, to hold their views a little bit more loosely and gently and carefully, what we model for them as Christian people is not that. We model like tight control over every single little idea and fierce battle between people who hold different opinions. And I don't actually think that's what Jesus models. And so it's sad and ironic that that's what, that's what people who bear his name, the Christians, um, tend to do. So. Let me give you a brief aside here about the way this day is described. I mentioned earlier that it's called Christ the King Sunday originally. More commonly these days, it's called Reign of Christ Sunday. The reason for that change is, first of all, I'll say it's laudable in my opinion. It's to remove the gendered language around king and kingship and to make the idea of Christ's reign in the world be focused more on the reign and less on the maleness, right? Um, and, and possibly also to remove the fairly specific political terminology of king, right? So, I will say, I am a big fan of doing this kind of thing with religious language. Um, I will readily admit and have preached in the past on the idea that the automatic assumption of a connection between God and maleness has been extremely destructive, harmful, hurtful, counterproductive, 
and I think also not inconsistent with what the scriptures actually show us about God. Um, this automatic assumption that, that divinity is male ends up pushing in the opposite direction, and we start to assume that maleness is divine. That's the thing that happens in, in Christian churches very often, and in the, in the history of Christianity, you can see this kind of seeping into lots of different things. And so I'm a big fan of removing gendered language when it's uh, possible and appropriate to do that. Furthermore, from a biblical perspective, I am perfectly happy with people referring to God in any way with regard to gender that works for them, because my belief is that God has no gender and God has all gender. Um, God is genderful. Uh, in my opinion, and in my reading of, this, of the sacred text. We see clues of this reality from the very first page of the Bible when the creation story tells us in this big, uh, wide, mythic language that God brought order out of chaos and separated light from darkness and land from water and earth from sky and that God made men and women in the image of God, which to me says that all people, regardless of their gender, uh, reflect the image of God which means that God is gender-full. There's plenty of other language as you go through the pages of the Bible that connects God to maleness and also to femaleness. God is described as like a mother bird in, in some cases, for example. And also, by the way, to things that don't have gender at all. Um, God is a rock or a fortress, right? And so the language of God, or the language for God in the scripture, is not specifically male. And we use by kind of habit, most of us, male pronouns about uh, referring to God. Um, but I don't think that you need to do that. I think, as far as I'm concerned, you can use whatever pronouns for God or whatever gendered language for God you want to do. Whatever broadens and deepens and otherwise expands our imagination for who God is, I am in favor of that. I am slightly less in favor of it when it comes specifically to Jesus. And let me tell you why I say that. And also, it's important to tell you why I, why I don't say that, I think. Right? So there's a really interesting thing that has emerged. For me, it seems very recent. I don't know if other people have mentioned it earlier than I have. Seen it online or wherever else I might have seen it. The idea that Jesus was trans is fascinating to me. Um, because if, if you believe in the virgin birth... You believe that Jesus was born as a, you know, God became human and was born into the world uh, without any male chromosomal participation. Does that make sense? I think that means Jesus' uh, chromosomes would have been XX rather than XY. Is that right? Do I have this right, biology people? I read, like, novels and things, so I'm just like... Right? And yet Jesus, biologically female because of the chromosomes... Um, was male, right? So the whole Jesus is trans thing is fascinating to me. It doesn't bother me at all. You can talk about that if you want or not. Um, but that's not what I'm actually talking about. I'm not trying to be dismissive of that, which I think is a really fascinating thing. What matters to me is a, a, a way of understanding the incarnation, okay? So the incarnation is the fancy $10 seminary word for the idea that God became human, Incarnation, carna, you know, um, carnal means bodily, right? It's like God embodied flesh. It means flesh, really. So God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, right, is sort of what John chapter 1 tells us. Um, 
theologians, theologians talk about this with a phrase that I think, this is probably a $25 seminary phrase, but I'm going to give it to you for free. Um, and you can be like, that's great. I'm going to leave that on the table when I go. Uh, but it's, the phrase is the scandal of particularity. I love this concept. What it says is that for God to become truly, fully human, that has to have happened in a particular time and place and in a particular way. It's inherent to the beauty and the power of the incarnation that when God became flesh and lived among us, God did that in a way that embodied a particular type of body, a particular place and a particular time. Now, please hear me say this. Does that mean that the Messiah, that Jesus had to be male? No. I do not think it means that at all. A hundred times no. It just means that he did happen to be. Just as he happened to be Jewish, just as he happened to be born in Bethlehem, just as he happened to live in Nazareth, just as he happened to have a mother named Mary and a father named Joseph and a brother named James, and he happened to have been born roughly 2,020 years ago. Now, it is my belief as a Christian, as a pastor, as a student of theology, that God could have been incarnated on earth at any time in any type of person, in any time of history, any station of life, any race, ethnicity, any gender, any nationality. That could have been the way it happened. But the way it did happen is that Jesus came to earth in Palestine in the first century as a Jew and as a man. Right? So it's not that the maleness of Jesus is important to me and I need to defend that. There are people who talk that way and I'm not interested in standing next to them while they do. <laughs> um, but the beauty of the incarnation requires the scandal of particularity. It's, it's scandalous because it is particular. It's special because it is uh, specialized. The fact that God became human requires God to become a specific particular human. The glory of God, I think it was St. Athanasius said, is a human being fully alive, starting with Jesus as a fully human yet fully divine presence on earth, and moving on to every other human who has ever lived with their particular way of being. The scandal of particularity is present in each one of you as well. Your humanness in its particular version is a miracle. And I honor all of it in each one of you. So for all those reasons, I tend to continue to call this day Christ the King Sunday, but I'm not mad at anybody who calls it Reign of Christ. I totally understand I think, you can please, by the way, always tell me if I've got this wrong or if I'm like being offensive or cruel or like insensitive or whatever. Um, I do want to hear those things and I'm, I would like to say, I hope it's true, that I'm fairly gentle in responding to that type of critique. Um, and maybe I'll get some of it today, I don't know. Uh, my point is, I love the sentiment behind the change of language to reign of Christ. I just don't choose to use it myself and I take this opportunity um, Today, not to reinforce the maleness of God, which I think is not actually what the scripture shows us, but to celebrate the particularity of the concept of incarnation 
And we're going to be talking about incarnation as we move through Advent and into the season of Christmas. Um, Jesus being born as a, as a little baby um, is part of that story as well. So um, <clears throat> let me talk for a few minutes uh, about the readings for today, what they give us as we try to paint a picture of the type of king that Jesus is. Because remember 18 minutes ago when I was giving the actual sermon for Christ the King Sunday and I was talking about we all have different conceptions of what a king is? What does the scripture say to us? It says a lot of things to us about who Jesus is, um, including in the Christian scriptures and in the Hebrew Bible, commonly called the Old Testament, where we see, I believe, um, sort of uh, prophetic emanations of, of who the Messiah would be, who Jesus would be. The reading that we got earlier from the Hebrew Bible was from Ezekiel 34, and it speaks of God's redemption of God's people, which is definitely something that we associate with Jesus, even though that passage is not necessarily specifically um, messianic in all parts of it. Um, but it doesn't mention the idea of a king at all. If you were here at the beginning of the service when I said, listen for all this talk about kings because it's Christ the King Sunday, and then that Ezekiel passage was read and you were listening for the concept of a king, you did not hear it. Do you remember what you did here? Rather than a king, you heard about what? That's right, a shepherd. As shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I, the Lord, will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. That's quite a beautiful concept to me, that God um, will, will go and seek out God's people who have been lost and scattered. And I believe all people are God's people, by the way. It's an interesting contrast to what we find in some of the other prophets of Israel about shepherds. Like if we were to go to Jeremiah 23, which I think might be one of the readings for Christ the King Sunday on a different different year in the lectionary schedule. It says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people, it is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings. Um, and if that sounds harsh, I want you to imagine that you might have been one of the people who was scattered as a sheep by the shepherds who should have been attending to the spiritual care of God's people because the shepherds do scatter the sheep of God very often. It's a very sad reality. And God says to them, you are, the, you are at fault for these divisions, for these fractures, for this loss of community. You haven't attended to the sheep, and so I'm going to attend to you. <laughs> Which is not the thing you want to hear God say to you, by the way. So why do we get this text, you know, either of these texts, but this year it's Ezekiel, on Christ the King Sunday? If you want to think about Christ as a king, it seems that we also must think about Christ as a shepherd. Speaking of roles in the world that we don't have a lot of familiarity with, I could do the same exercise with you and say, what's the first shepherd that comes to mind when I say the word shepherd? And, and if you said Fletch, I would be like, yes, you are my people. Um, and most of you are too young to know what that is. But we don't think about shepherds very much at all in our world. And if we do, we certainly don't think them... Uh, think of them as regal, royal figures. We think of them as kind of like earthy, down-home, um, 
probably less educated, uh, out in the fields with animals, probably dirty. <laughs> Not exactly the um, picture of a king. And yet what the scriptures are giving us in these readings is this connection between kingship and shepherdship, <laughs> which is a word I just made up. Whatever the reason for that might be, it does give us a sense of how our expectations for Jesus are blown apart by the reality that is presented to us by Jesus. This was certainly true of his followers during his earthly ministry. So many of them wanted a warrior Messiah, as you know, who would lead a violent uprising and overthrow their oppressors, the Roman government. And instead they got a rabbi Messiah who called himself the Good Shepherd, who rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey, who chastised one of his closest disciples for raising a sword against the Roman authorities when they came to arrest Jesus, and then who willingly submitted to an unjust execution at the hands of that oppressive Roman state. That's the king that Jesus' original followers got. It wasn't the one they wanted. I wonder what kind of king you want out of Jesus, and I wonder if he's going to give it to you. The gospel reading for today, not an easy text, by the way, gives us a combination of language that points us to Jesus both as king and as shepherd. Did you notice that? It starts out by saying, when the king, uh, when he comes in all his glory, he will sit on the throne of his glory. Very kingly. And then he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. So this king is a shepherd. How fascinating is that? The king will say to those on his right hand this, and those on his left hand he'll say that. Now the teaching of Matthew 25, while difficult for a lot of us to hear, I think is fairly straightforward. It would be kind of pointless for me to try to give a sermon on that, even if I weren't pretty much out of time to give sermons today. The expectation that we are to care for those among us who are most vulnerable, who are most outcast, who have the least to offer us in return, that would preach, but I'd rather you just kind of return to the words of Jesus. Read Matthew 25 again and ask yourself, are we living as the people who Jesus commands us to live as? I think very often we're not. What it shows us is a Jesus who sits on a throne, a royal Jesus, and who judges the people based on an intimate knowledge of their behavior and their tendencies, which is what a shepherd does with their sheep. And so I'm going to invite you as I close today to think back to the first thing that came to mind for you when I asked you to think of a king, a particular king. And I want you to... Spend a moment uh, as you prepare to come to communion and think about how close that picture, whatever king came to mind for you first, how close to that uh, is that picture to what you know of Jesus and maybe to what you've just learned about Jesus as this royal shepherd who separates the sheep from the goats. I wonder, does it cause you to have expectations of Jesus that are not consistent with what he taught, with how he acted, with what he requires of his followers? I wonder, is the Holy Spirit leading you and calling you into, into a new understanding of what God's forever anointed king, that's what Messiah means, actually is like? I wonder if it might be a chance for the Spirit to prompt you to ponder 
how power should be wielded, not just by heads of state like kings and presidents and governors and mayors, but by anybody who possesses power. And most of us have a little bit of it somewhere in our world. And I wonder if, if this will inspire all of us to, to try to become more and more like Christ the King as he's pictured in these scripture readings today. Uh, I pray that you'll have those things in mind as you come to take communion together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.